This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth. The more technical you are in understanding how your product works, how it actually solves problems for customers, how it does so in a way that's different than your competitors, the more credibility you have, the more authenticity you bring, then the more impact you can have in marketing. From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing Podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Legends of Marketing podcast. My name is Justin Schreiber, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at People AI. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Ryan Carlson, the CMO of Okta. Ryan has a fabulous story, and I've been so excited to dive into it with Ryan. Now, those that know Ryan know that Ryan came from Colorado. He is a friend to the mountains. As I think about Ryan and try to pin him and his musical tastes, you know, maybe a classic CCR comes to mind, maybe a Lenny Kravitz if you bring it a little bit farther to the uh, the present Ryan, I heard a rumor, though, that you may be the biggest fan of the Indigo Girls on the planet. Can you confirm that? Wow, what a way to start to start the interview. Yes, Justin, you are correct. Um, and uh, I, I grew up in Colorado, went to school in Boulder, and I first got exposed to the Indigo Girls way back when they were getting started. And I, for some reason, I just love them. I, I t- I've gone to many Indigo Girls concerts, uh, usually with my uh, girlfriend, who's now my wife, and and many people who would go to see us at the concert, they'd say, oh, it's so nice that you're going to this show with your girlfriend. I'm like, no, she's coming with me. This, this is my show. I, I do love the Indigo Girls, but yep, the rumor's true. You got to know what you got to know what you love. And you know what? I respect that. So um, I will I will share a few of my I grew up. I We're, we're just really unbuttoning everything now. I grew up on Barbra Streisand with oh, my mom. Nice. Nice. And to this day, I listen to all the modern stuff, but I got to I got to admit, Barbara makes it into the repertoire every once in a while. So, yep. We're we're really connecting here, Ryan. I, I like we're starting gonna, it off this way. We're going to highly edit this podcast, right? <laughs> okay, well, that's a great place to start though. You did grow up in Colorado. I'd love to know a little bit about the hometown that you grew up. What was it like as a kid? What were the kinds of things that you spent your time doing? I grew up in rural Colorado, not in the mountains. People think of Colorado as the mountains, but it was more out for the toward the plains. And the reason I we lived out there is because my family was into horses, uh, big time into horses. All of them, my my uh, brother and sister, my my dad especially, and I had did not want anything to do with horses. And so they spent their time doing horses. I spent my time uh, more backpacking, uh, camping. I got into fishing a lot. Now fly fishing. So a lot of outdoor stuff. Uh, but the but not the horses that the rest of my family did. And I think right now, actually, as you speak, you're up in Tahoe. So you're saying that's correct. The roots. Yeah, the mountains uh, can't get too far away from the mountains. And I'm lucky to be up here right now. So you're growing up in a small town, plains of Colorado. What was your first exposure then to computers and, and technology? My family um, 
I, I loved technology and, and just computers and all that stuff. Anytime, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to know uh, back in the day when we wanted to watch movies, rent movies, we had to rent the VCR and the movies at the same time, the VHS oh, yeah. tapes. Yeah. So I was always the one that had to connect all of our systems together. Anything, anything went wrong with anything electronic in our house, they'd call me in. So to my parents' credit, they realized that I liked that stuff. And so they bought me the, the first computer that our family had was one they bought for me. All, I just got into that stuff just because I liked it. Um, and my, my family encouraged me. I didn't really know anything about engineering or what that meant. I was just I, I liked math and science and I was uh, I wasn't too bad at it. And that eventually led my my way into studying engineering. What was the first computer that you owned? Commodore 64. The Commodore 64. I'm, I'm very much revealing my age here. I, I was an iconoclast at the time. I got the Atari 800XL. Nice. And I don't know if, I, I think the Commodore was actually this way as well. Cassette tape drive was the go-to medium for your, your data. I mean, I don't know that I actually used the computer in the way it was intended. I was just trying to find a way to play video games on it way back in the day. So I think I'm, I mostly used it for games. I love it. That, that's, that's a trip in the Wayback Machine. All right, so you're you're the internal IT department for your family, big motivation so that you can watch the videos. And then eventually you head off and you you go to college. Tell me a little bit about your college experience. What'd you study? How'd you kind of tee up that next step coming out of college? I when I went in, you know, when you're applying for college, sometimes you declare a major. So I declared engineering. Somebody told me I was going to do aerospace engineering. They said that's probably that's not a great industry. So I thought, well, computers are the future. I'll choose electrical engineering. It was no more thought out, well thought out than that. But I ended up liking electrical engineering, studying it, and I thought I'd be a practicing engineer. I kind of focused on digital signal processing um, in in undergrad. I thought that would be a place that I'd, I'd spend time, and then. When I was coming out of college, you did a lot of companies did on-campus recruiting. So yeah, I was interviewing for engineering positions, uh, semiconductor design positions at companies like Intel. But there was a chip company um, called Cypress Semiconductor uh, out of Silicon Valley that was interviewing for a different kind of role, something called product marketing engineer. I didn't even know that was a thing. And so I, I took the interview and it, the person basically explained it as, if you know technology, we need people who can translate that into the language of business. And can talk to customers and can work with salespeople. And it sounded uh, way more interesting than being a, an actual engineer. I, I, I wasn't that great of an electrical engineering student. I don't know if I'd be a great engineer, but talking about this stuff and explaining it um, and being in part of the business world seems super interesting. So right out of school, I went into a role called product marketing engineer in Silicon Valley for a silicon company, Cypress, um, way back when. Talking about things, explaining it, was that part of who you were growing up? Did you find yourself in, in different ways, telling stories, explaining things, translating things? Not as much as you might think. I was actually a pretty shy kid. And so I didn't do a lot of that. Now, you know, as as a, as a marketing leader, you have to get on the stage quite a bit and, and end up doing that. But that was not my, uh, I didn't like doing that when I was younger. Um, I did like to understand how things worked. And so once you, understanding how things worked, if you understand it at its core, you're probably better able to explain how things work after the fact. And so I think maybe that's where that started. Just being curious about how these things worked. I, I took so many different things apart. But in engineering, the thing that appeals to me most about it is that you understand how things work. Maxwell's equations, I think, are some of the most um, 
amazing things in all of mathematics and in physics. And so understanding how that stuff works, I think is really a, a big part of wanting to explain, then turn around and explain how those things works. That's one of the things I feel distinguishes a career in technology versus maybe a career in, in marketing from a CPG perspective. You really need to understand the underlying technology. You can certainly get by if you don't understand it, but it's hard to rise to the le level of being exceptional. You've clearly got a technical background, doubly major, spent time in, in chip design, which is about as, as heavy as it gets. How has that technical background that you built early in your career shaped your philosophy and, and the kind of work that you've done as a marketer? Well, I, this is, I mean, I'm sure something we'll talk about a lot during this, but I think the very best marketing in general is marketing that's very authentic, very true to the product or the service of the company and very genuine. Now, that's probably not an insightful comment. Many people would say, yeah, marketing that's not authentic is probably not very good. But many people judge a, a marketer based on how good they sound or how um, uh, bold or um, impactful the statements they make are. And they don't um, judge a marketer or a marketing program or uh, marketing in general based on how accurate and how credible it is. And so I think if you're working on in technology on technology-based products, there's a healthy skepticism by many people on the marketing claims. You hear some people say, I got to get past the marketing BS to figure out what's really going on. And so I feel like the more technical you are in understanding how your product works, how it actually solves problems for customers, how it does so in a way that's better and or different than your competitors, the more credibility you have, the more authenticity you bring, then the more impact you can have in marketing. So I feel like if you're working in tech, you got to understand the tech if you're going to be in marketing. And that's not true in many places. I was talking the other day to Rene Bonveni over at Palo Alto Networks, obviously also a very technical company in a technical space. He literally said the same thing. Understanding the product allows you to cut through the BS and get down to what makes it unique, what makes it special. And that was his advice as well. Understand it and that will that will take your game to the next level. It's true, but they also say that this can work against you. If you are an engineering mindset, whether you you know are an engineer or study engineering or you just have kind of an engineer's mindset, you're less inclined to be to be uh, to hyperbole. You're you're not you may be not you may not be able to be as bold as you should be. So you have to balance that authenticity and credibility with a willingness to to take bold and um, strong stands about what your product or service does. Don't be shy. Um, and I think sometimes that is harder for people who have a technical background to do so. So it can work, it can cut both ways for sure. That, that I know that's a theme or a motif that comes through in your career is taking bold moves. You see it in the kind of work that you've done. As I've studied the, the places where you've spent time, I've seen that come through as well. Maybe let's talk about Okta, because that that's clearly the the pinnacle of your career thus far. Was it was it a, a slam dunk for you to get into Okta? How, how did that happen? Uh, the opposite of slam dunk, because the first time I interviewed there, they did not give me a job. I, I was lucky to get to meet the company when they were, you know, I think a little less than 10 people. And, that, and I, my career up until then had been a combination of product management and product marketing. So kind of deciding what products the company should build and helping the company talk about those products. Product management and product marketing were closely intertwined throughout my career up until Okta. And so I went to interview for their uh, the first real product management hire. 
and they liked me that, you know, I went through four or five rounds, but I was coming from a completely different space. So I was coming from a hardware background, uh, networking and systems background, and they're pure cloud software. And so they ultimately decided we like you as a product management person, but you don't know the space well enough. But I became convinced that they were going to build a special company. So I just kept on them. I would I went and interviewed people who I thought could be their prospective customers, and I would send my notes off to the to the Okta team. I'd follow the competition, or I'd follow developments in the in the industry, and just forward them my thoughts. And so the, after a while, they needed somebody to, to build the product marketing function, and so they asked me to come back in. And even that wasn't a slam dunk. But then I think Todd, our CEO, yeah, said at one point, like Ryan clearly wants to work here. Why don't we give him a shot? And so I was lucky that there's been very very many points where I got very lucky. And that was one that they they gave me a shot. That was over, almost nine years ago now. I uh, I also had the opportunity to talk to Cedric Pesh. He's the CRO over at Mongo. And the question presented to him is what what talent is overrated? He said the talent that is overrated is intelligence. The talent that is underrated is tenacity. Mm. There are a lot of brilliant people in the world. But as he looks for star performers, it's the tenacity that he says always sets people apart. I think your story is fascinating, taking nine months to get into a company. Who, who does that? Most of us, we interview, all right, great, not a fit, move on to the next one and, and keep working. That's yeah, well, I think, I think in startups and technology, you have to become used to rejection because things don't work in a bunch of different ways. Whether you're trying to raise money, you're trying to join a company, whether you're trying to sell a, a customer on a new idea, you, you're going to hear no. And, um, you know, one Octa's uh, other co-founder, Frederick, I think his one of his phrases that really resonates with me is when you hear no, that's the start of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. So you definitely have to get used to that. Okta must have been a pretty special company, though, in your mind to continue to pursue it the way that you did. What did you see in that company? I had seen there was. It's, I think if you're a venture investor, you look for one a combination of three things: the team, the product, and then the market. And it, different venture investors put those in different orders. Some people may say the market. If you have a big market and you have a good team, they'll eventually figure out the product. Or some people say, look, the team is the number one thing. They'll figure out if they're not in a big market and they'll go after a big market. It's some combination of those. For me, it is in this order, team, market, and product. And so I first, I became convinced that the founders of Okta um, were gonna build a company that wasn't just a successful company, but a, a, a successful company that you would be proud to be part of. Building a company culture that had the the attributes that resonated with me was a big part of it. You know, things like just high high achievement, uh, no you know no no excuses, very execution oriented, but also very high integrity, very team focused. We're, we we want to win, we want to win together. Um, we want to do things the right way, not 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 what's optimized for the short term, but what's optimized for the long term. So I just became convinced that the team was really strong uh, for those reasons, and then it was clear that the market was both big. And very importantly, there was a discontinuity, to use a crappy term, in the market. The, the market was shifting from one way of doing things to a new way. And anytime you see that, it means the incumbents have a hard time adapting. And in this case, I had seen that in a very significant way in semiconductors, um, in a technology shift from one to the other. And in Okta's case, it was very clear the shift was going to be from everybody moving from on-premises computing to cloud-based computing. And, you know, clearly, as we're sitting here today, that's very obvious. You and I are talking to each other over Zoom. Um, and there's no other way to talk with people right now other than things like that. But back then, 
it, it still was pretty obvious, but maybe not as obvious to many, but moving from on-premises computing to cloud-based computing created both a disruption and an opportunity for a company like Okta. So I thought the market was big and the market opportunity was there. And then last, you know, uh, funny for somebody who comes from the product side and product marketing, I thought their product was good. Um, if you have all three of those, three of those, then that becomes something special. And I thought Okta had all three. So you get in there, you you build the product marketing team, and you're in a great position now. Product marketing, I think, is a, a really special role in that you get to sit between sales, marketing, product. You get involved in development of strategy, execution of the strategy. You're well poised to move into that CMO spot when it opens up. Was that kind of a no-brainer as well when uh, when the spot became available and you raised your hand and said, hey, I'd love to throw my hat in the ring? Uh, no, also not a no-brainer. There's a, there's a recurring <laughs> theme here, which is I get rejected a bunch, um, you know. I was running the the product marketing team, which was not that big. And, you know, we had um, the head of marketing. Um, in this case, we didn't have this. Uh, we didn't have C-level titles at that point. It was the VP of marketing opportunity was there. And I kind of raised my hand for it. And I said, hey, I think I could do this. Like, you know, when the company is small, when you tell the, the company story, you tell the product story, you, the product story and the company story are one and the same. As the company gets bigger, the company story is separate from the product. Um, it's it. Uh, it's slightly different. And so I, I raised my hand and said, hey, I really, really want to help tell the Okta company story. But I didn't really have any experience doing that. Demand gen was not something that I'd spend. I've worked with a lot, but didn't run it. Um, but the key there, the reason I didn't get it the first time is I was tentative. You know, I was not, you know, I, I, I had already, I think I had a, a pretty good reputation at the company. We had a lot of success on the product marketing side. And, but I didn't, I wasn't bold enough in, in asserting my view on why I should be that person. And so I didn't get that, that job. Uh, we had a head of marketing come in and, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons that when that person left, I decided I'm not going to be tentative again. And I texted our CEO on, on a Friday and said, look, I'm the person that's going to help us take this company's story to the next level. I'll be at your house tomorrow morning, Saturday at 7 a.m. We're going to have breakfast. And he said, I don't need to meet with you for breakfast. We can talk Monday. But even then, it took me probably four months of uh, convincing before they gave me a shot. And in this case, like I can't um, disagree with them. I thought I was really good at product marketing. There's a lot of things as a, as a CMO that I hadn't done. Um, and Octa's is a really good company. So, you know, really good companies don't have to take chances on people. They can go get proven people. And, you know, you mentioned the the person um, who said an overrated um, attribute is intelligence and an underrated one is intensity uh, or sorry, uh, tenacity. I look at it slightly different, differently. I think intelligence is, is very important. Tenacity is very important. People tend to overrate experience and knowledge. And they tend to not look at the trajectory yeah. of a person as much. It's risky when you're hiring anybody. So you kind of want to mitigate that risk by hiring somebody who's done the job before. And in hiring executives, that's especially true. Why would I take a risk on an executive when, in Octa's case, we're very well positioned to be able to attract the very best people in the world? Our, where our company was doing really well, it's, you know, it has still does so, obviously. So they didn't need to take a chance. But I, what I needed to convince them that I had a better trajectory than somebody who had maybe more experience. And there are attributes that are part of that, you know, ability, willingness to learn, um, tenacity, like you've talked about, having shown success in a variety of fields in the past, not just in one field. Those are kind of the things that that I tried to focus on when 
trying to convince them to make me CMO. I think you're right. When you're hiring more junior positions, it's easier to quote unquote, take a risk. You have an opportunity to, to cultivate, to mentor that person. An executive needs to come in with a distinct point of view, hit the ground running and really get, get traction fast. What's interesting about your story, though, I think that you de-risked that decision for Todd in, in various ways. You obviously had the track record. I think what you're saying is incredibly important about stringing together a series of wins. Winners repeat, and you see it again and again and again. But then in addition to that, I heard I heard that you put together like a, was it a 40-page deck or over the course of that four months about what your plan was going to be? Yes. I mean, that was part of being bold and not being tentative and saying why I should get the job. But one way to de-risk, some, in this case, somebody who doesn't have the experience, is to put together a detailed plan. And I went, I, I researched the plan. It wasn't, it was, it was, it was probably 30 page PowerPoint deck, but it was a combination of here's what I think we do well. Here's what I would do in my first 30, 60 and 90 days. Here, I've taken the existing marketing budget and I've pulled it apart. And I, I, here's what I think is, is working well. Here's where I would invest differently. And here's how I figured that out. I went out and talked to these different marketing leaders and see what they do. Um, and then a lot of it was just my approach to marketing, my philosophy on marketing, and then also my approach to leadership. And, you know, a lot of the intent, not intangibles, but the the attributes of somebody who could not just be a good marketer, but also be a, a builder and a leader of a team. I think one aspect is cert of any leadership position, but certainly one at a hyper growth company is how can you both build and lead a team that is growing in a dynamic way? And so I spent a lot of time um, putting it down some thoughts on that. And when I you know, I worked on this thing for months and then I wanted to show it to Todd. He's like, he said, no, I don't want to see this PowerPoint deck. I know you, we've been working together for years, but I made him sit down and go through it nonetheless. <laughs> All right. So you've, you finally landed the big position. I'm, I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for the moment when you say then it's, then it's a no brainer, then it's all coasting downhill. So you get the job, you've proven yourself. Todd is like, you're, you're my guy. And then at that point, what was it like working for Todd? You're talking that you're reporting directly to CEO now. Well, it's actually so even I'll give you one more not, not no brainer story. So we were looking for a CMO and he uh, he sent a note out to the company congratulating uh, Ryan Carlson on being named VP of marketing. So I got the head of marketing job, but I didn't get the CMO title. And he made it clear. He's like, we're not looking for a CMO. There is no other person. Ryan is Ryan's the guy. Um. But he did that in part because, you know, it, then I got promoted to CMO uh, like nine months later after I had done, we did a rebrand of the company. We did our first customer conference that was under my uh, my team's control. And he, I think he wanted, wanted to make sure that I could do it before he gave me the CMO role. So then, then that's probably the time where he said, okay, you're a CMO. Um, but also Frederick, our other co-founder, he says all the time, like at a hyper growth company, your job six months ago is not the same as your job now. It's not the same as your job will be six months from now. And as an executive, as a leader, you're always kind of like earning the job that you have because it's not the same job. It's always growing and expanding. So I don't know that it'll ever be a no brainer, but I'm, I feel pretty confident now. It seems like though you thrive when you, when you dive in with both feet, are challenged and then are able to just rise and rise to the challenge and knock it out of the park. Well, I, I have a uh, many weaknesses. One of them is I uh, I get bored easily, and you know, um, so some, being in an environment where things are always new and changing, and the job gets uh, bigger or different over time, that that's a big motivator for me. Um, keeps me from getting bored. Feels like makes me feel like I'm always learning, and that that drives me a bunch. 
You asked about what it's like to work for Todd. Um, I'm happy to go into that. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to hear about that. I mentioned earlier in the interview that I thought both he and and Freddie were going to build a great company in part because they just have high integrity, and and you know one of Octa's values, core values, is integrity. One of them also is transparency. So Todd demonstrates both of those to to an extent of I've not seen in any other leader. You know exactly where he stands. He's incredibly transparent. Everything is super high integrity. It minimizes politics across the the team and across the the company, uh, and it keeps us all focused on you know what the job in front of us. And it's very very rare, at least in my experience, for Todd to tell you to go do something. He just he asks a lot of questions, and he just expects a lot. And so that process of asking a lot of questions and having really high expectations is both empowering because I'm not being told what to do, but it's also very there's a high degree of accountability. The high bar of quality is just there implicitly, and the questions kind of lead both you and he together to figure out if we're meeting that high bar. And so it's, I think employees in general do their very best work when they're fully empowered, when they have all the information they need to do their jobs, when they're pointed in the right direction and they know where the company's trying to go. But then what goes along with the very, very best employees is this accountability. The very, very best ones want to be held accountable if it's not working. Um, and, and Todd's leadership style does both of those things really well. You've mentioned a few times the importance of being bold. I think you've illustrated that just in the, the jobs that you've gone after. What about from a marketing perspective? How has that manifested itself in terms of the work that you do? I think early on in a company, it's easier to be bold because you have no choice. You got nothing to lose. And so we, you know, a lot of the different ad campaigns that we did and the different approaches we did in marketing at Okta early on were just bold out of necessity um, and because there was nothing really holding us back. The thing where I've really focused in the last couple of years on being bold is as you get bigger, as you get successful, as you, you know, you could argue Okta definitely has created a category and we're now the category leader. So we're on top in, if, in that, from that standpoint. We're definitely not on top in terms of what we think we can achieve. There's a ton in front of us. But if you are the leader, then sometimes you, you, this feeling of I have something to lose creeps in. I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to make a mistake. And, you know, there's a very large percentage of people who work on the team haven't been here that long. That's just what comes with being a hyper growth company. And so they don't necessarily, they haven't been in an environment where they've seen us take big risks and see those risks pay off. They come in and think, I'm not working at this leader, this company that's leading its category. I can't be the one that messes it up. And so what I have really have found over the last couple of years is you have to really make it clear to people that being bold is not just acceptable, it's necessary. And to be more specific, it's you have to take risks. You can't do something that's going to stand out, that's going to be innovative, that's going to be new, by definition, if you're not willing to take some risks. And so we have to create a culture where, and in our case, it's it's we have to balance it because some things you cannot screw up, like our customer conference. We want to make the very best customer conference we can. The bar for quality is as high as it can be on that thing. But that's not everything has to be that way. And so we have to make it clear to people that it's okay to take informed and necessary risks. You shouldn't take unnecessary risks, obviously. You shouldn't take uninformed or um, risks where you're going to repeat the same mistakes, risks where you haven't learned in the past. But you should absolutely take necessary risks in, in areas where you are you know that there's a chance it could pay off. And you also say to yourself and to the team that it's okay if it doesn't because that's part of risk. 
So that, you know, we did a campaign last year, an advertising campaign, which is really around killing Active Directory. Active Directory, you know, in IT is used by every single company and has been used by them for 20 years. And it's from our competitor, Microsoft. Why would we go out and say we should get rid of Active Directory? Um, that's risky in a bunch of ways, but it's been one of the best ad campaigns we've done because it really grabs attention of people. It, it, it leads them to say, wait a minute. They lean, they physically lean in when you're in the room talking to them about it. And they say, tell me more. And that's all, that's the best you can hope from, from an advertising campaign. Cause it gives, it creates a space for you to fill that conversation in with all the details about what you and your company and your product can do for them. And that was a, that was not an easy ad campaign to get, to get um, everybody on board with inside the company. Cause it was risky, but it turned out to pay off. Another hallmark of a great leader, the ability to build a really strong team. Tell me a little bit about what you look for as you're hiring people. Who do you want? Who do you want on your team? We touched upon it a little bit before. There is a, you know, somebody who's resilient, who has tenacity. Uh, and, you know, in our case, it has to be very much a team first approach. People who are out, you know, who, who want to promote themselves or their career at the head of the team is, is never really works out for us. Um, it might might work out in the short term because somebody's personally motivated, but it doesn't doesn't work out in the long run. And I I like in product marketing, some of the early product marketing people I hired, the attributes they had were not necessarily that they came from the same industry, but that they had worked on multiple different products before. You know, I, a favorite interview question that I have about a product with in product marketing in particular is to, to ask somebody to pitch you the the product they're working on. But then, okay, now pitch against your product. Tell me why I wouldn't buy your product. If they can do both of those things at the same time or give them a product that they don't know, like, you know, I'll make, make one up. Tell me about the iPhone. How would you pitch that or how would you market that? Um, and if they can do that from not just one product, but multiple different products they worked on, then it's them. You know, sometimes you'll get, you'll hire somebody out of the big name company that everybody's heard of that was a rising star company it went public and now it's worth a lot of money and you hire people out of that company and you think well they must be part of that success they might have just been along for the ride how do you know what they can do if you you look for like i think you said it winners tend to win multiple times i think having people who have done one but in very different areas that's a really a good attribute as well and then once you've built that team tell me a little bit about what your your belief is from a leadership perspective, what are the hallmarks of a great leader? I have completely plagiarized a couple of axioms in this regard that I try to adhere to, um, probably not don't do very well, but we have an Okta in general has an empowering culture. And I really feel strongly that the very best teams are ones where everybody is empowered as much as they can be. And so some attributes that we do is try to, you know, um, try to manage everybody the way that you'd want to be managed. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Well, not very many people like to be told what to do. And so don't do that yourself. Give them all the information that you have. Be very transparent. And, um, you know, I think, and then that I already mentioned before, the accountability that comes part comes with that is, I think, what the very best people want. So I try to do that. And I, I try to, but in, sometimes empowering cultures can, and empowering leadership styles can accidentally give people the impression that you don't care. Oh, that you take care of that. That's go for it. I trust you. And some people may think, well, that's not important to Ryan. What I try to do, and I stole this from somebody, is, hey, if, if this is an important project, don't. I would not say bring me three proposals and we'll figure out the right one to do because that really means you're the decision maker, not them. What I instead would say is this is a really important project. 
here's what I think about it. Here's what I think is are, is important. Here's what I think we might want to consider. But you make the call. Now go. So at least they know what you think. They're not flying blind. They know it's important, but they don't have to. You're not the decision maker. They're the decision maker. Um, so that's one. Another thing that, I, that I've stolen is I think our jobs as leaders is to find problems and fix them. And it's not, our job is not to prevent problems from happening. Now that might sound like, well, why let problems happen in the first place? Why not just prevent them? Because then you're preventing anything new. You're preventing innovation. You're preventing the risk uh, seeking behavior I talked about before. Um, And problems are going to happen anyways. What we should be in is in there uh, helping find them and fix them and not punishing people for them, uh, but just fixing those problems. And that I think also creates a an environment where if you have a culture where bad news travels faster than good news, where people don't feel like the only acceptable way to communicate is talk about how everything is great, and then they kind of hide the problems, those things all kind of together create an organization that moves fast, that figures out what doesn't work and adapts, um, finds new ways of doing things and integrates them into the process, and is really a resilient organization with people who kind of thrive in that. Um, So there's a lot there, but that's how I try to look at it. A great and comprehensive overview of, of the hallmarks of a great leader. Thank you for that. Thank you also for being so generous and sharing the, the career path that you followed to get to where you are today. I think that one thing that we all share is uh, the reality that we're going to take a swing at things and we're not always going to connect, but it's those people that, that step back into the batter's box again and again that seem to have the, uh, the greatest successes. Well, if one thing you, if you listened all the way to the end of this, you take away from this is I got lucky many times over, uh, you know, in my career. So I think anybody who has, um, has an obligation to share what they've seen, um, with, with others, um, you know, many, found many things that don't work, a few things that do. And, um, it would be, it would be odd not to share that in some way. So happy to do so. Well, whether it's luck or skill, or most likely a little bit of both, Ryan, we appreciate the good work that you're doing. We also very much appreciate the great products and services that Okta delivers. Ryan Carlson is the CMO of Okta. He joined us today to share a little bit about his career, his philosophy on marketing. And for all those things, Ryan, we thank you. Thanks, Justin. It was a lot of fun.